Hey man, so today we're going to continue our series in the, our place in the Beatitudes. We're going to keep going down, we're getting very close to the end. After this one, there's one more left because we're going to combine verse 10 and 11. So uh, after this one, there, there's one more Beatitude left. So we're going to keep going ahead, keep going along. I pray that God has ministered to your heart with what we discussed last week about being pure in heart. That they shall see God and understanding our responsibility in this, how we cooperate with the Lord and turning from sin as the Holy Spirit gives us the understanding. And so we talked about being pure in heart. And so today we're going to look at verse nine, Matthew five, nine, bless are the peacemakers, peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called sons of God. Before we get into this text, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your greatness, Lord. Thank you for inspiring your your men to write this word down in a book and a scroll and so that we can have it and just to meditate on it God and you just speak to it this is a living word God you speak to us through your word God we thank you for your goodness help us to understand our role our responsibility as peacemakers to represent you well as a peacemaker Lord God it is you we praise Holy Spirit we pray for wisdom and understanding Illuminate the scriptures, open our eyes to receive it, to understand it, to be focused on it, to see you in it. Oh, Lord Jesus, it's by your authority, it's by your power that we stand, that God, you even hear us. Amen. Amen. So blessed are the peacemakers. At the first reading of this text, Matthew 5, 9. Uh, when I, when I was first coming to this text, I, I did a double take. You know what a double take is, right? When, when you look at something and then you do a quick look back to make sure that you are reading it correctly, to make sure that your eyes are not deceiving you. Well, that's what happened, at least for me, when I, when I first looked at this text, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And, and, and the reason that I, I did this, the reason that I did a double take, because I, I'm looking at the scripture and I'm saying, Jesus, out of all the things that you have identified in these past beatitudes, it is the, it is the peacemaker that gets to be called the, the child of God or the sons of God. This is the, the one trait where you say that now I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm looking like you that now I'm a child of God. This is the, the, the trait. I'm like all these other texts, Jesus. And you're saying blessed are the peacemakers. Have you, have you ever had it where, or you ever heard someone say when they had a kid or a son and, and they're saying, boy, the way you sound, you sound just like your daddy. You ever heard people say that? Or, or you ever heard a, 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 a girl, a young girl talk and they say that the, she must get that from her mama. You heard that before? Or they'll say that the, the way that she is talking, the way that she is acting, she, she sounds just like her mom. See, that is what Jesus is saying here in this text when he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers that they will be called sons of God out of all the traits that he, he would use. He, he said, it's the peacemaker that warns this label. And th- that made me do a double take because I'm saying, Jesus, what about righteousness and, and meekness? It seems like that would warrant that label more. But you said, blessed are the 
peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So that, that threw me off. And, and, and I'm saying in my mind, okay, Jesus, why not loving? Why does this beatitude not read, blessed are the loving, for they shall be called sons of God? Because you are ultimately loving. To me, that is one of the major traits that identifies who you are. And so I'm saying, maybe that should be, that, that, that in my mind sounds better to fit or maybe if it said blessed are the compassionate they will be called sons of God or or maybe if it said blessed are the grace givers right um they shall be called children of God because he gives grace and so I would say those to me would accurately describe more of a, a child of God to me uh, it's the peacemaker you're gonna use to give this label of child of God but when I begin to think about the gospel, when I begin to think about the good news and, and, and how it's described in scriptures, I begin to see, yes, that does fit. Because God is a peacemaker. See, Jesus Christ was the ultimate peacemaker. And see, I really, this, this text right here, it, it's so practical in nature. I really want to just jump right into it and show you how we apply this to our lives. But in, in order for us to fully understand this text and begin to apply it in our lives, I, I believe we have to really understand how Christ is the ultimate peacemaker and we become peacemakers by our, as a result of him being the ultimate peacemaker. So as we go through this text today, the bulk of it is going to be um, showing the credentials of God, of Jesus being the ultimate peacemaker, and then our response to him being the ultimate peacemaker, and then some practical applications and how we carry out this peacemaking here in this world. So Jesus, he was the ultimate peacemaker because it was Jesus who the Father sent to take on human flesh, to take on human flesh to become our peace because we have rebelled against God, because we turned our back against God. God sent his son to be our peace. See, it's kind of like this. Can you imagine God, the highest in all of creation, mankind, he, he makes man the only one who is made in his image. And that one person, that, that one being that is made in his image begins to rebel against him and becomes God's enemy. See, we as a human race, we have committed treason. We have committed treason because we have rebelled against our sovereign authority. We have rebelled. See, it's, it's, imagine this. Imagine a military commander. Imagine there's a, a military commander and this military commander goes to an enemy or goes to a foreign country and he begins to just disclose all of the secrets of the United States. He begins to tell all of the, the military tactics of the United States and, and he just gives all of that information. That person that military commander would no longer be a friend of the United States. That military commander would now be an enemy of the state. That's the term. He would now be an enemy of the state. And see, we in our rebellion, because of our sinful hearts, guess what? We are enemies of the kingdom, naturally, just like that commander. And some will say, but what do you mean? I'm not an enemy of God. Now you're going too far, Brother Jerome, because I've never with my mouth said that God is my enemy. I've never cursed God. I've never said I didn't believe in God. So how can you say that I'm an enemy of God and I've rebelled against God when I've never said those things with my mouth? 
See, the, our rebellion against God was not so much with our mouth, but our rebellion happened in our hearts. Do you remember what we discussed last week? Blessed are the pure in heart. Do you remember how we, we saw how all of our actions, our speech, our thoughts, they all proceed from the heart. See, it is in the heart where our rebellion against God has taken place. It is in our heart where we have made ourselves enemies of God. See, we rebelled in our hearts against God when we constantly violated his commandments and his ways. See, we were showing the true nature of our hearts. That is where we declare that God is my enemy. Maybe we never said it with our mouth, but with our heart that resulted in our actions, that resulted in our speech. We were claiming our authority as rebels against God. But some others will say still, but, but Brother Jerome, you know what? I wasn't even a believer when I was doing those things. And I never went to church and heard the preacher preach. And, and so how could I be guilty of, of breaking God's commandments? How can I still be a rebel when I never actually read the Bible, never heard that taught? Well, whether you went to church or not, whether you read your Bible or not, it's irrelevant to you breaking God's commandments. Because the scripture shows us in, in Romans 2 that God's laws have been written upon our heart, which means that you knew when you said that mean thing, you, you knew when you did that action, it was wrong. Matter of fact, that was your intent when you said it. Your intent was to hurt. Your intent was to inflict pain with your, with your words or with your actions. See, we knew whether you ever read the Ten Commandments or not. You were exercising your rebellion against God, making yourself an enemy of God. See, that was our heart flexing its muscle, claiming its authority. And as a result of our rebellion, guess what? We became the subjects of God's wrath as enemies of God. Matter of fact, let me show you how Paul shows it. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Look what Paul calls us naturally. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. And again, the reason we are getting here, because I want to show you how God is the ultimate peacemaker. It's from our understanding of God being the ultimate peacemaker that we can carry out this beatitude in ourselves and be peacemakers in our context. So you have to fully grasp who God is and him being the ultimate peacemaker. Because of our rebellion, remember, we have claimed ourselves enemies of God. And because of that, we are subject of God's wrath. We are subjects to God's wrath. So look what Ephesians 2, 3 says here. Look at, look at Paul. He says this. He says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here goes our verse. And were by nature, natural by nature, children of wrath. Even as the rest. Now, some inter- some commentators interpret children of wrath to mean that it was our sinful nature that we spew wrath. And so we're we're children of wrath. And that could be the case. But I, I believe in this text when Paul saying children of wrath, even as the rest, he's saying that because of our rebellion against God, because of our sin, we are objects of God's wrath because of our enemy position. That is what that means. He's saying we're objects of God's wrath. And the reason I, I say that is because the Greek word that is used here for wrath or gay, it's used 36 times in the New Testament. 
And out of those 36 times, around 29 to 30 times, it's always used to identify God's wrath on sin, on sinners, and judgment. So Paul is saying that we are objects of God's wrath because of our rebellion against God in our hearts, which shows in our action, which shows in our mouth, which shows in how we, we move and breathe and act in this world. See, we are subjects of God's wrath. And here's the thing. This is not just a future wrath that is to come. See, oftentimes in society, when, when God's wrath is spoken of, it's spoken of as this future thing. Yes, there is a judgment day that all will stand before God and, and all enemies of God will face his wrath. But there's also a, a, a present wrath, so to speak. And we've even seen some of that in, in our main text today in 2 Thessalonians. See, it, it is not just this hell that we will experience as enemies of God if we die in unbelief. But there is a, a, a right now, a, a temporal wrath that the, the enemy of God um, experiences. And I want to show an example of this. Go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Yes, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, right after Colossians, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 16. Paul is writing to the church. Hear what he says. Paul says, I'm going to start at 15, matter of fact. He says, who both killed the Lord. He's talking about the Jews here. Who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. He says, they are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. Here goes our part. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. See, in this text where Paul is saying, this is not a, however you want to interpret this verse, this is not a future wrath Paul is saying that they're experiencing. He's saying right now they're experiencing a, a, a present wrath of some sort of God, of right, of right now. This is not just a, a future wrath, but this is a, a present wrath. Let me give you another verse. Go with me to John 3.36. John 3.36. Gospels. Are we here for the sake of time? I'm going to speed it up. This is Jesus speaking. Let's see what we can glean from here and see if we, what we can say about wrath. If it all future, is there some present reality that we experience as enemies of God? He says here in 36, he says, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life. But look, but the wrath of God abides on him. Or some of your texts will say remains on him. This is not speaking of future. This is speaking of present. There's a present wrath here. Let me give you one more. Go to Romans. Romans. Romans 118. Romans 118. Let's see if he's talking about a future wrath or a present reality that the enemies of God experience. 118, look what the Apostle Paul says here. Romans 1, he says, For the wrath, here goes our word, the wrath of God is revealed 
from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Is that present or that future? Is that, is that a present reality or a future? See, this is not just a, a future wrath that the enemies of God will, will experience, but it's a present wrath. It's a, it's a present experience of God's displeasure that's, that's occurring. And Paul shows us how this pleasant, uh, this present displeasure or this present wrath is carried out. Go down in the same chapter in verse 24 through 26. We're going to see how God carries out this present wrath on those who deny God, who, who, who boast and, and, and indulge in ungodliness. Look at 24 through 26. Look what the scripture says. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. 25. For this, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Look at 26. For this reason, the same thing again, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged a natural function that was, which is unnatural. We're just going to stop right there. So how do we see that God is carrying out his present wrath? What are we gleaning from this text? We see that God is carrying out his, his present wrath or his, his present displeasure by removing his hand and allowing people to do the things that their rebellious, sinful heart wants to do. And because they're doing the things that their sinful, rebellious hearts wants to do, it leads them to a place of destruction. It leads them to a place of unhappiness. See, see, it's God just removing his hand and allowing you to do what you want to do. And we see what happens as a result of that. We see the actions that came from that see uh, the people who who just decided to deny God and want to just live how they want to do God has allowed people to go and just live by their own hearts and to do what they want to do and do the different things that they think that's going to make them happy but they never find fulfillment they they never find joy they never find that satisfaction that they're aiming for see when I when I think about my own life in God's wrath, it, it knocks me back because I, I, I'm run. I, I think about how I was running around the college campus, studying, playing sports, having fun, doing this and that, having no idea that God's wrath was upon me at that moment. Having no idea that that I was when I was in high school was an enemy of God, that God's wrath was upon me. See, because what, what I often heard from the world and, and even the church was that I was a child of God. That was a cliche saying that you are a child of God. But we see from this text, no, we are not naturally children of God. We are children of God's wrath. Enemies of God. We're children of disobedience, the scripture says in other places. This just knocks me off. See, before you came to Jesus and knew him in a pardon of your sin, uh, you were just living your life, doing whatever you were doing. But guess what? God's wrath was resting upon you. You were an enemy of God. You, you got to understand this. You were just living. You thought things were cool. You didn't understand that you had God's wrath on you. That you would never have God's best for your life at that moment. That you would never have that ultimate peace that you wanted. That you would never have that ultimate joy. Why? Because God's wrath was upon you. 
See, I want you to understand this even from the Old Testament standpoint. The children of Israel were, were God's chosen people. They were the one called to serve the true and living God. They were the ones who were given the oracles of God, meaning they were given the word of God. But all of the rest, guess what? The scripture shows us in Acts 4, um, 14, 15 to 18 that God allowed all the other people to go their own way. He allowed them to do the things that their, their sinful hearts wanted to do. And what did that lead to? That led to idol worship, that led to worshiping statues, that were to crazy, uh, crazy religious rituals. Some, some religions had child sacrifice. And see, that's what happens when God just removes his hands and, and allows us to go and do those things that are sinful hearts want to do. And that's why for us, some of the things we did, it led us because we just did the sinful things that our heart wanted to do. We, that's why we had multiple, um, intimate partners. I just want to say that word because I know there's kids here. That's why we were led to do multiple drugs and addictions and to mutilate our body. We just did those things that our sinful heart wanted to do. See, I, I don't know if we really want free will like we think. See, free will in the hands of a spiritually dead person is dangerous. We, we don't want that. We want mercy and, and grace instead. And see, here is the majesty of God. Here's the key point of why I said all of that. As opposed to allowing fallen humanity to stay under his wrath right now in the wrath to come, as opposed to allowing us to remain in darkness, as opposed to allowing us to be slaves to sin, as opposed to allowing our rebellious hearts to, to guide us, as opposed to allowing us to remain enemies of the kingdom of God, he sends the Prince of Peace to make peace. This is why God is the ultimate peacemaker. You see this wrath that we deserve. We see this wrath that was heavy upon us. We, or we were not deserving, but God, being the ultimate peacemaker, sends peace to his enemies. See, the scripture tells us in, 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 in Romans 3.25 that Jesus, he was our propitiation. Meaning that, guess what? When he was on a cross, all of that wrath that you and I deserve as enemies of God, all of that because of our rebellion, all of that was satisfied. All of God's wrath was satisfied on Jesus. See, he was our peace offering. He was our peacemaker. It was because of him. See, Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. The father is the ultimate peacemaker because he chose to make his enemies, his friends. He chose to make people who rebelled against him, his friends. He is the ultimate peacemaker. Romans 5.1, go there. I want to show you this as well. Romans 5.1. Jesus being our peacemaker. The Father being the glorious architect of the peace. Jesus coming and carrying out this peace, being the peacemaker, taking on our sins so that we would no longer be enemies of God and now friends of God. Romans 5, 1, I want to show you this here. Look at the first verse. Look what it says here. It says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through who? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's making his enemies his friends. He's Jesus Christ is being the peacemaker. He's the one in the middle. He's our peace. 
And look at verse 9 in the same chapter. Look what it says here. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? The wrath of God through who? Through him. So do you see what's happening here? We rebelled against God because of our rebellion, because we're enemies against, against God. We, um, um, because we have done that, we deserve God's wrath. God being the ultimate peacemaker sends us his peace, his son. His son now takes on that. And now we stand before him free from the wrath of God. Holy, righteous because of Jesus. See, Jesus is rescuing us from this wrath that we so deserve. You got to get that God is the ultimate peacemaker. So when we look at this beatitude and it says, blessed are the peacemakers, we have to understand who is the ultimate peacemaker. He is our, he is our inspiration. He's the reason why we are the peacemaker that Jesus is causing us to. He's the reason. But the question is, if I'm reading this text, I would want to understand is, but why is God being this peacemaker? Why is he making peace with his enemies? Why is he offering to save from his wrath? I think Ephesians 2, 3 gives us a little indication of why this happens. In Ephesians 2, 3, let's go back here. We, we talked about God's wrath. Look what it says here in Ephesians 2, 3. I think it gives us some indication of why uh, this is happening. Or really 2, 3. I'm going to go to 4. Matter of fact, that's actually the verse I want. So it says, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. So when you understand this verse, what Paul is saying here is that we were children of wrath, right? Meaning we deserve God's wrath. But God was rich in mercy. Remember, we looked at bless are the merciful. What does mercy mean? Mercy means God not giving us what we really deserve. So he's saying we were children of wrath, deserving wrath. But God was rich in mercy and didn't give us his wrath. But the verse says in four, he said he was being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. What does that show us? That even his mercy, it was flowing from his love. See, God's love is like a container. And from his love flows mercy. From his love flows grace. From his love flows peace. From his love flows comfort. It is his love that flows out all the good things of God. So when we ask ourselves, why was God this great? peacemaker it was because of his love see that is what it flows out of that is why God is the ultimate peacemaker and that is why he did it God sitting high on his throne out of love sees us in our pity he sees us running around following our hearts like chickens with their head cut off get into mischief after mischief into sadness and darkness and he decides to have this compassion and says I'm going to send my peace I'm going to I'm going to end the beef that they started it's the beef that they started by their rebellion in their hearts against me I'm going to end that by having my son come and be the peace that is why the gospel is sometimes called the gospel of peace, the good news of peace, the good news of God's peace. And we can see this in the same chapter of Ephesians. Stay here in chapter two. You should be already there. I want to show you this. Go down to verse 13. And watch how much peace comes up here. 
Look what it says here. It says, and this is Paul. He's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people who were formerly pagan, who worship idols, who worship multiple gods, who may have engaged, engaged in rituals and child sacrificing and all these different things. Look what he says here to them. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our what? Peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, meaning the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace, 16, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the, the hostility. Verse 17, look at it. Here's another word coming up. 17. And he came and preached what? Peace to you who were far away. Talking about Gentiles, people who didn't know him, right? And what else? Peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So you're seeing this, the gospel of peace. That's why it's called the gospel of peace. Turn to Ephesians 6. Stay in the same book, chapter 6. Let's look at 14 and 15. 14 and 15. Look what he says here. 14, he says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, 15, and having shod your feet with the preparations of the gospel of what? Peace. See, the gospel is the gospel of peace. The gospel is how man who was warm with God finds peace with God, finds calm and cool with God. That's why it is the gospel of peace. Oftentimes, in my evangelism, I want to show you this. Oftentimes in my evangelism, I've made the mistake, I would say, of approaching people with a new life as the treasure, right? And that that can be fine sometimes. Hey, Jesus, he's transformed my life. He can give you a new life. Man, you are walking in darkness. You can be made alive and, and explaining that through the gospel. And I've, and I've done that, but this is what I've, I, the pushback that I've got sometimes. They'll say, I'm happy that Jesus has changed your life. And I'm happy that you're new, but I'm happy just like you. I don't have Jesus. I'm fine. I'm, I don't need a new life. I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm cool. And I know our natural reaction is like, no, you're lying. No, you don't. But I want you to remember this. Hebrews chapter 11, 25. And it's speaking about Moses. And in that scripture, it says this. Moses chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season or the fleeting pleasures of sin. And what that means is that sin for a time, it can be satisfying for people. When we were doing our sin, it felt good at moments. It wasn't just bad. See, sin can feel good. And so when you come into a person and saying, I want a new life, when they're enjoying their sins, they're like, I'm cool with what I have. I, I like getting high. I-, I like sleeping around. I like what I'm watching on the TV screen, what I'm saying. What do you mean new life? I don't need a new life. I- I'm cool. But as the text shows us, that it's only for a season and it's fleeting and it leads to destruction. 
So as opposed to just coming and saying that, do you want a new life? It's better to come with this approach of the gospel of, have you been reconciled to God? Have you found peace with the Lord? Do you, do you know him? Do you know that you are, you are an enemy of God because of your sin and rebellion? See, that gets to the heart of the matter. So have you found peace with the Lord? And see, we, in understanding this, our role as kingdom children is to carry this gospel of peace. And guess what? As we do that, we become these peacemakers. See, we, we, as we carry the gospel of peace, telling people about how they can have peace with God, we, we become the peacemakers. See, this, it, it, the gospel is this beautiful message. And we have to carry it. But our, our role is not just evangelism peacemakers. That's only part of it. Our role is not just, just, just horizontal peace. See, the gospel is a horizontal peace. There's a horizontal peace between man and God, but we also have a responsibility as children of God to, with a, 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 a horizontal peace. I'm sorry, a vertical peace with God. Then there's a horizontal peace. That means our relationship with others. The gospel, Jesus Christ provides our vertical peace between man and God. But we as children of God, we have a responsibility horizontally with our relationship to be peacemakers. See, that is our call as well. And that, that is our, our role as peacemakers, that in, in situations and circumstances, horizontally, we are called to be those peacemakers. That has to be our, our first avenue in, in seeking peace. To those who don't know Jesus, who don't know and understand the kingdom. And that's what these other beatitudes, horizontal peacemaking, being a placemaker of peace, that's also rooted in the Old Testament. Remember when we were talking about how all of these beatitudes, they're really not new radical teachings. They were already rooted in the Old Testament, but people kind of just put them aside and, and Jesus is coming and bringing them back to the forefront. This same teaching of being a peacemaker horizontally is already established in the Old Testament. For example, Psalms 34, 14, it tells us to depart from evil, do good, seek peace and pursue it. That's, that's right. That's, that's grounded in the Old Testament to be peacemakers, to pursue peace. See, we as followers of Christ, we have to pursue peace. And guess what? Even to our own hurt sometimes, even what it's going to cost us, we have to pursue this horizontal peace in our relationships. I want to give you an example of horizontal peace that we must establish. Look at Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. Verse 15. We're going to see how Paul is speaking of horizontal peace that we have to pursue and bring. And before we read the verse, let me, let me give you a little bit of a context here. Paul is writing to Romans, church in Rome. This is people largely coming out of pagan backgrounds, crazy things that they were into, multiple, multiple deities they believe in, multiple false gods. And what they would do with these deities, they would do these animal sacrifices, um, you, you would go to somebody's house and they would sacrifice an animal. I mean, it was so common, uh, every place they would go and they would take some of that meat, right? And they would take it to the marketplace and then they would sell it. And so you would have situations or circumstances where you may have a believer coming out of that pagan background 
And let's say he comes to your house for dinner. He's coming to your house for dinner and he, he's seated at the table and he says, brother or sister, so-and-so, did you buy this meat in the marketplace? Yeah, I brought it to the marketplace. Gave me a good deal. Yes, I bought it there. And then he'll say, I can't eat it. And you're like, what? Me and my wife, we've been slaving in this kitchen all day trying to make this meal for you. And you're telling me you can't eat it because I bought it in the marketplace. There's no, there's no such thing as idols and false gods. So it doesn't matter. I'm going, you know what? You don't have to eat it. I'm going to eat this anyways. Me and my wife, we've been cooking. So we're going to eat this anyways. Paul is saying that is not the proper response. Why? Because you can wound your brother or sister's conscience by doing that. Paul shows us in this verse. Look at 15. Look what he says, how we should act. Look what he says in 15. He says, for if because of food, your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Look at 16. Um, um, he says, I'm sorry, do not destroy with your food. Look, him whom Christ died. 16. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be evil, be spoken of as evil. Verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Let's keep reading. For he who is this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. 19. So then here goes Paul, our horizontal peacemaking. He says, so then we pursue the things which make for what? Peace and the building up of one another. So what is Paul saying here? Okay, if, you're, if your brother's offended, don't do it then. Don't eat it. Do the things that's going to establish peace. Pursue those things that's going to establish peace. If you have a brother or sister in the faith and maybe they're a little weaker than you and they're not understanding and there's something that's bothering them and you know you have this right, you can do it. Don't do it in their presence. He said, no, that's going to bring calamity. That's going to bring problems. You pursue peace. Yes, you have the right to do it, but if it's going to cause problems and friction between your brothers and sisters of the faith, do those things that's going to bring about peace, even to your own hurt. See, that is our responsibility as peacemakers. Even to our own hurt, we pursue those things that's going to bring about peace. That is our responsibility. But it's not just peace in our relationships with one another. But as believers, as peacemakers, we are also to pursue peace in our communities, our cities, and our country. I'm going to give you an Old Testament text for this. Go with me to Jeremiah 29.7. Jeremiah 29.7, Old Testament. If you need to use your... uh what they call this chapter, concordance thing, not concordance, wherever you find the books, please use it. Don't have no shame, but go to Jeremiah 29, 7, 29, 7. chapter 29, verse 7. And as you get in there, remember, as peacemakers, we have a responsibility of gospel peace, of reconciling man to a man and a woman to God. Then there's this horizontal peace and relationships with one another. But then as peacemakers, we also have this peace that we have to seek in our communities, our cities, in our country. Look at here, at Jeremiah 29, 7. Let me give you a little bit of context before we read the text. 
Here you have the children of Israel. They're in exile. They've been forced. They've been kicked out of their country. They've been dragged to Babylon. So they're no longer in their country of Jerusalem. So now they're in this strange country. They're in this strange country. And now they're considered to be foreigners. They're aliens. They're away from their home. I hope you guys understand where I'm going. Some of you probably understand where I'm going when I say that. They are now strangers, foreigners, aliens in this foreign land. They're away from their home. So they're in a different place. They're in an environment now where it's no longer about Yahweh, but it's about all of these multiple deities. This is where they're at. They're at a place where people are doing all of these crazy idol worship things and, and child sacrifice and human sacrifice and, and immorality is everywhere. They are away from their home. Why am I telling you this or describing this in this way? Because there's a similarity between the exiles, the, the uh, children of Israel, the exiles in Babylon and the Christian in this world. There, there, there's a similarity. Why? Because the apostle Peter in uh, his book, first Peter, he calls the believers foreigners. He calls them aliens. He calls them strangers. Why? Because heaven is really their home. And now they're living on this place. See, see, do you ever feel as a body of believers, as a follower of Jesus, do you ever feel like strange in this world? Do you ever feel like I just don't fit here in this world? My, my principles just don't line up. You should feel that way because you are an alien. You are a stranger. Your home is the kingdom of God and you are living here in this broken world. So, yes, you should feel that way. You should feel out of place. And so we have this commonality here with the the exiles in Babylon and as being believers here on this earth because we're foreigners and strangers. Just like them, they were in a strange place full of immorality and wrong things. We are in this strange place full of immorality and wrong things. We are exiles. We are foreigners because heaven is our home. That is our place. That is how our heart beats. That is where our mind is at. So we are just like them. And so when you look at this text now with that understanding, look what the Lord gives Jeremiah to say to these exiles that are away from their home. Look what he tells them here. In seven, matter of fact, I'm going to start at verse five. He says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. He says, take wives um, and become the fathers of sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your husband i mean and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters he says and multiply there and do not decrease here goes our verse look what he says here he says seek the welfare my text but that word is shalom meaning peace so he's saying seek the peace of the city where i've sent you where um where i have sent you into exile not only I want you to seek his peace, but he says, pray to the Lord on its behalf. <laughs> then he says, for in its peace, you will have peace. Do you see what he's saying here? He's telling these, he's telling these, these exiles here, while you're in this foreign land, I want you to be peace pursuers. You pursue peace. You be these peacemakers. He, he separates it or differentiates it from just praying for it. He's not saying, yeah, I want you to pray for it, but he says to seek. I mean, I, that means I want you to be actively involved. I want you to be a peacemaker. Pursue peace. And not only do you pursue peace, he says, I want you to pray for it. And I want you to, to pursue the peace because if that city has peace, you can have peace. And so what's he telling? He's showing us that we 
our communities that we live in. We can't just pray for it, but we have to be peacemakers and pursuing the peace of it. See, you have a responsibility to your communities, your, your city to be these peacemakers that are pursuing the peace of it. See, it's not just this, this vertical peace that we have this responsibility for, and it's not just relational, but we have to seek the peace of the places that we live. You have to seek the peace of the context that God has placed you in. You are a peacemaker there. That is your responsibility to be peacemakers in all of these contexts, whether it's your job, with this organization, see, the practical ways how we as an individual and a church can be peacemakers is simple things as this. Joining local community groups, joining neighborhood watch groups, maybe volunteering to coach youth sports to keep um, troubled kids out of trouble. Because if those troubled kids are out of trouble, that seeks the peace of the community. Or maybe it could be... Um, Volunteer in different places, or maybe it could be volunteering at schools, or volunteering in reading programs, or volunteering tutoring pro programs, or being in contact with your local council person. See, all of these places and all of these spaces where God has us, we have the responsibility there to be peacemakers and to pursue its peace. And while we're there, guess what? Our responsibility is not just to pursue its peace, but it's also to introduce him to the Prince of Peace. See, we go there, pursue its peace, and then we introduce him to that vertical peace. We establish horizontal peace between man and man, and then we introduce him to the vertical peace of Jesus Christ. See, that is our responsibility as we invade these spaces. That is your responsibility as a believer. And it's not just to come to church. No, go out there, get involved. Go pursue the peace of your community. Go and meet your neighbors. Go and make friends and introduce them to the Prince of Peace as you establish peace in your, vert your horizontal relationships. See, that is how we be these peacemakers. That, that is what it means to be a, a peacemaker. And guess what? Those who the Lord's eyes are those who God, he, he begins to open their eyes. They will receive our peace and they will see that we are children of God. As you go and establish that, God will open eyes and they'll recognize God's peace because he has opened their eyes, that regeneration that we talked about. And they'll see, wow, this is a person of God that's offering me this peace, that's pursuing this peace. And not only will they recognize that we are people of God, but guess what? On that day when you stand before God on his throne, he will recognize us as his children. So there's a present and future recognition. I want you to think about this in Matthew chapter 3 in the Gospels. Do you remember when, when John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus? And remember when, um, when Jesus comes up out of the water, what does the Father say about Jesus? The Father said, my beloved son, right? And whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine on the day of judgment, the father saying similar things about you? My child, my beloved son or daughter, the peacemaker, my beloved son or daughter who was pursuing mercy. Can you imagine standing before the throne of God with angels all around and the father is pronouncing you as his child, you as his daughter, calling you sons and daughters of God? I can only imagine that. 
Jesus shows us here. We have a responsibility to be peacemakers. And as we be these peacemakers, we looking like our daddy. We're looking like our father. We're looking like Christ as he came to be the peacemaker. You got a responsibility, believers. You got to be peacemakers. Not just churchgoers. You got to get out there, pursue peace, and introduce people to the Prince of Peace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, you are so amazing. God, you give us this big, huge responsibility of being peacemakers, but we praise you that it's not all on us. You have equipped us with the Holy Spirit to carry out your purpose and your mission. God, it is our desire to shine and to look like you. God, help us as we go into these spaces, God, as we go into these different places to represent you well, to pursue the peace of it, to pursue the peace of our relationships. God, give us the words to say, Open our heart to introduce him to you, the Prince of Peace that you've already established to your son. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.